Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share the story of their journey of their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard new intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today, we talk to Molly McGee, class of 2013, doctor of animal sciences. Molly will share with us how her time tending to horses at the 4-H inspired her to continue her studies with animal sciences and earn her doctorate at the University of Illinois. Joining us today is Dr. Molly McGee from the class of 2013. Molly, what do you do? Hi. Um, first, thanks for having me on. Um, I just graduated with my PhD from animal sciences uh, from the University of Illinois. And I have not started working yet, but I just accepted a job with Cargill as a a technology application lead um, for their animal nutrition uh, swine work. So I'll be doing research with pigs. Now, Molly, from from my memory uh, of when I had you as a student in AP language so many years ago, you were always involved in uh, kind of work with animals and all that. I was wondering if you can maybe rewind for us uh, when your interest began uh, to 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 be part of animal sciences. Yeah, so I, you're right. I was always into horses. Um, my mom um, grew up showing horses and stuff, and so then just naturally got me into it. And so me and my brother, um, we both did 4-H from the time we were, you know, eight years old all the way through high school. So we did poultry and dog showing and horses and all that. Um, And so I thought, you know, coming from the suburbs, you know, we're from West Chicago. I thought that the logical career thing would be to be a a vet. So I chose animal science U of I, um, thinking that that would, you know, set me up nicely to go to vet school. But then once I started my undergrad, I started getting some more um, experiences with research. Um, I worked in a couple different labs. I first worked for the University Horse Farm and saw a little research there, but not too much hands-on. But then uh, worked in a dairy nutrition um, experiment, Uh, was, you know, mixing diets and feeding dairy cows and you know, taking samples and everything. And then I worked with some rats um, at the vet school. And then ultimately I settled on pigs, but it's been a lifelong thing, mostly through 4-H, you know, my mom getting me into that, um, that kind of set me up for wanting to pursue a career with animals. I was wondering, like, can you maybe explain what 4-H is? Because that's not something a lot of students, I think, even at West Chicago are involved with. How did you, uh, how did you become involved with that? Yeah, so 4-H is, everyone kind of thinks of it as like, you know, the kids at the county fair showing their animals, that's 4-H, and that's true. Um, But 4-H is also, you know, photography, visual arts, Um, they have like 
literal rocket science and, um, you know, cake decorating and just like any kind of hands-on project you can think of. Um, 4-H kind of has, you know, niche clubs for that and different projects that you can get involved in. And so because my mom was in it growing up, um, she was like, all right, let's find the club in DuPage County. And so then we just joined, you know, the largest club. Uh, it was called Just Say Nay. And yeah, did that for 10 years. And I really think my experiences in 4-H kind of, you know, primed me for wanting to get a career in animals and in agriculture. Because obviously, I mean, people listening to this or you, not a lot of people from West Chicago are even familiar or interested in agriculture, but somehow that's where, you know, me and my brother both ended up. So it's kind of funny, but it, you know, life works out sometimes <laughs> in funny ways. Yeah. And, and U of I has such a great program for uh, those sciences as well. I, I, I seem to remember how excited you were when you were kind of gearing up for the, the program. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, so as an undergrad, you were, I, I, I always love, you know, learning about the types of laboratory work that you did. So what was, can, can you maybe describe like what was the particular experiment or study that was, um, that you were working on with the horses uh, initially? Well, the horses, um, like I said, I kind of, I saw some of the veterinarians come in and they would do their research projects, but I was not as hands-on. I was just more, you know, feeding the horses, you know, cleaning their stalls, um, you know, monitoring foals after they'd be born. Um, It wasn't as hands-on. So um, I worked there for one semester and then the semester after that, I got involved with the dairy farm and that was a lot more hands-on. So I tended to kind of switch more towards the livestock um, side of it after that, after I got that position. So when you get into the more uh, like hands-on or even where you're actually kind of making some decisions uh, in the the lab, um, what were what was that kind of experience where you felt that you were starting to get a little bit more autonomy uh, in the laboratory? Do you remember where which uh, particular lab that was happening at? I would say that actually started around my junior year when I uh, started working with the pigs. And so I was a part of a program in undergrad called the James Scholar Program. And so one of the requirements for that is to do an independent research project. So I approached my supervisor and said, hey, like, is there anything I can do? And he said, well, I have, you know, this little project that needs done. Um, If you weren't going to do it, it would just go to, you know, one of the other researchers. And so um, he kind of helped me put together a proposal. And I was in charge of those pigs um, from, you know, the day they were weaned. Um, I was, you know, in charge of prepping the diets, mixing the ingredients together, um, moving the pigs, monitoring the pigs, you know, all through the experiment. It was, um, I think it was a six or seven, no, no, let me take that back, five or six week study Um, So, you know, we fed this particular ingredient. We wanted to see how the pigs uh, performed. And so that was my first hands-on experience with managing my own experiment. Um, Prior to that, as an undergraduate research assistant, I just kind of would show up, ask my supervisor what we're doing that day, and then she'd give me a task and I, you know, walk away and do it and then come back. Okay, done. So I didn't have a lot of that autonomy that you're referencing until I got that project where it was okay, like you need to make sure your pigs always have feed. You need to make sure that you're doing um, fecal scores. I know that probably sounds gross to someone not in the industry, but we have to basically, um, you have to measure 
object or sub objectively. <laughs> See those two words mixed up. You have to measure basically how um, my, how many incidences of diarrhea the young pigs would have as kind of an indicator for health. I'm trying to phrase this in a way that won't gross out the listeners. Um, hey, it's science. Then, you're good. You're good. Okay. Don't hold back. You don't have to euphemize anything here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was, you know, handling those animals from start to finish. And then, um, we, you know, at the end, we would weigh those pigs and get all the data, you know, summarized. And then with a postdoc, um, she helped me summarize the data. And then I presented the results um, at an undergraduate research symposium. So that was really my first taste of um, doing my, you know, full research project start to finish. That must have been really satisfying just to kind of be able to have so much control and then, you know, really just kind of be in there with uh, the results. What were you hoping to find in that experiment? Like it had things, was it you wanted to see a certain kind of caloric, um, like, uh, how do I say this? Like, what, what was the end game of like what you hope to find with the, uh, the, the diet manipulation? Yeah. So the whole um, kind of hypothesis is that we could replace a portion of fish meal with this um, yeast product. And so um, for really young pigs, they have a high protein requirement. And so oftentimes, especially in the past, they would use a lot of animal proteins like fish meal or meat and bone meal, kind of byproducts from the food industry. Um, But there's more trends towards using um, more plant-based proteins um, for a multitude of reasons. Um, And so there's this, I mean, yeast is not a plant, but they use uh, different fermentation products. And so this was a specific product made from yeast and it was supposed to replace fish meal. Um, And then the hypothesis is that we could achieve the same amount of performance um, by replacing the fish meal with this new ingredient. And so we, um, you know, see how fast they grow, how much feed do they consume? Again, we look at the consistency of the feces, um, different stuff like that. And then you can make an assessment of, you know, this is, you know, 90%, you know, effective compared with this, uh, you know, benchmark ingredient fish meal. Um, And in this case, we saw no differences in the experiment. So at first I was looking at the data, I was like, well, this is terrible. There's no differences. How can I present this? But then after talking with my supervisor, he's like, no, no, that's exactly what we wanted to see. We want to be able to replace different ingredients without seeing any diminished performance. So you would look at things like you had mentioned feces. Would you take blood samples? Would you observe behavior? What were the ways in which you were able to determine that there was um, uh, it, it was a suitable replacement? So for that experiment, um, it was pretty, it was a small experiment, you know, undergrad. Um, So it was just uh, weighing them periodically throughout the trial and then looking at the consistency of the feces. But in my master's and my PhD work, we do a lot more in-depth, you know, looking into different uh, parameters, like you mentioned, taking blood samples. I did a big experiment with sows and looking at their offspring. So we took blood samples throughout the experiment and then measured a bunch of different um, cytokines in the blood. I also had to milk these pigs, which is um, 
if it sounds hard, it is. It was very challenging. <laughs> we had to take, you know, milk samples and we had to measure if there were any differences in the composition of the milk. You know, is there less fat? Is there less protein? Is there, you know, less lactose? Stuff like that. So, yeah, you're right on, you know, on the mark with there's a lot of things to look at besides growth. So we do look at, um, you know, health parameters, like I mentioned with the milk and the blood, but a lot of it also is, um, you know, nutrient digestibility is a big thing in our lab that we, um, do. So in my master's, um, I don't know how you know deep you want me to go into this. I want as much as possible. I love this stuff. It's fascinating. In my master's, um, one of the main goals is to determine how digestible the nutrients that are present in those ingredients are. So what can the pig actually absorb and utilize to grow? And so we do that in a number of different ways. But one of the ways that we do it is by surgically putting a cannula in the side of the pig's um, in the, you know, the side of the pig. And it's kind of like an ileostomy bag. If you've ever, you know, known somebody with one of those, um, or a colostomy bag. So basically it allows the digesta, um, to flow out of the bag. And then you can measure, um, the composition of that digesta. And so if we know exactly what we're feeding on the front end, and then we can subtract what comes out of that cannula, we can know exactly how much of those nutrients or energy or whatever you're measuring is actually, um, you know, disappears in the pig, meaning it was absorbed and utilized. So that's, you know, it's just kind yeah, it's, of a- it's really fascinating. I'm, I'm wondering, because I want to get back to like the leap from going from undergrad to grad school and then uh, getting your PhD. Yeah. But I was wondering, is, is what's driving the research in this particular field um, one that is kind of based on finding more economical and maybe more um, environmentally sustainable food for livestock? Is that what seems to be kind of the exigence behind uh, the research? Yeah, precisely. So um, our lab is pretty unique in that we don't do a whole lot of um, work with grants. It's kind of funded a lot through the pork industry. So companies themselves will approach my supervisor and say, hey, we have this idea, we have this product, can you carry out the research? And so then, um, you know, they give us an idea. And a lot of people think, you know, if the experiment is funded by these, you know, industry companies, you know, the data is going to be all biased and skewed. But I saw firsthand all of my research was funded by a German plant breeding company. And I was testing a specific crop that they made. And they had no input into, you know, we designed the experiments. We saw, you know, this is the most scientifically sound way to do it. Um, You know, like, and then we were in charge of it all. There is no, there is no bias coming from those sources that I at least witnessed. And so, yeah, a lot of it is um, driven by the goals set by industry. And um, what they're driven by is exactly what you said economics and environmental sustainability. I would say those are the two big ones. I think that's interesting because, I mean, it really is important what you just said there about creating that type of confidence and having double-blind research to know that this data is one that is free from the thumb of influence of those that would seek to maybe 
benefit financially. It's the science to drive it. So it's really uh, it's, it's it's great that that you have that level of um, liberty and autonomy in the lab to, to do that. So yeah, let's go back. So you you um, you you graduate with your undergrad at U of I, and then you just you you just kind of basically kept the the ball rolling within that program. Was there any other school that you were thinking about getting your master's or was it all a fait accompli that you wanted to keep on going to U of I and pursue your master and PhD? Was it all part of the long game to become a, a PhD or did you, and, and you knew that was going to be the path or did, was it just kind of like, yeah, I love this. I'm going to keep on going with it. I'll start more towards the beginning. So I did want to be a vet. And so that's what I kind of thought. I had tunnel vision. I thought that was, you know, I want to work with animals. I'm going to be a vet. And then as I got more exposure to these different careers in research, I started considering like, okay, what other avenues are there? And one of the biggest drivers actually for me choosing between vet school and grad school was cost. And I mean, I don't know if you remember, but back in high school, all of the schools that I applied for, it was primarily driven by where can I get financial aid. So that still stuck with me through you know my time in undergrad. And when I was considering vet school, I was talking to all these recent graduates and they had $200,000, $300,000 in debt. And I was like, oh, I I graduated undergrad with no debt because I, you know, got financial aid and scholarships. And so then once I learned about grad school, that was kind of where I had the shift. And I didn't consider too many programs. Um, You know, once I decided I was going to get my master's, it was pretty much I'm going to pursue it at U of I because I already had this great opportunity um, in the swine lab. But yeah, the main, um, the, the choice that I had was really a binary between vet school or graduate school. So that was, that's pretty much what drove it. A lot of it was financial, like I mentioned. And then I already had the setup um, with Dr. Stein in this lab. And so it was just kind of a natural transition into the master's program. And then um, between my master's and my PhD, it was actually kind of funny because I sat down with my master or my uh, yeah master's advisor and it was before I started and he was like, well, the project that I think would be a great fit for you is actually a four-year project. And I was like, well, that's funny because I'm only here for my master's. I'm not staying for my PhD. I really just wanted to do my master's and get out and start working. He's like, okay, okay, I'll let you decide. And so then about a year later, he's like, have you given it any more thought? Do you want to <laughs> stay for the full thing? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I do think I want to stay. And so it didn't take long. I was like, I already have a great thing going with my master's. And so it's kind of the same transition from undergrad into master's as it was for master's into PhD. It just, you know, kept going. Um, and I ended up finishing both degrees in four years. So oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. So how did you begin to narrow your focus? Because I mean, there's, there are many animals to, uh, to select. I mean, you're talking about equine, bovine and porcine and all the various different, um, animals. Like how, how is it because your undergrad was already more comfortable with, um, with swine or like, or how did, how did you, kind of come to select that particular um, animal for your, your study? Yeah. So I always knew that I wanted to work with large animals. And so some of that, you know, was my experience with horses, equine, you know, Um, but I didn't necessarily think that I wanted a career with horses. Um, So that's when I started, you know, putting the feelers out for the dairy industry. 
And I actually did a lot in um, undergrad with, you know, the Illini Dairy Club. And I did um, this uh, program called Dairy Challenge, um, where basically we went to Wisconsin and California and we would go to these farms and basically have to judge the farms and then put together a whole like presentation about what they're doing right and what they, you know, could improve on. And so I did a lot with dairy and I really considered um, doing dairy for my uh, graduate school, um, but ultimately decided on the pork because of the program that I was already working in at that time in my junior and senior year. Um, But I think if I would have pursued dairy, I would be, you know, very happy in that industry as well. Um, I don't like have a preference for either species, but it is um, interesting, especially with the pork, um, that the pig is so similar to humans and to dogs. And so one of the jobs that I was interviewing for before I accepted the one with Cargill was actually working um, with uh, pet food manufacturing. And so because the pig is so analogous to other species, um, I thought that that would be kind of a more versatile path if I pursued, you know, monogastric nutrition as opposed to ruminant nutrition. Could you define that for mere mortals? Uh, what's monogastric versus the, the other one? I just want to make sure I know what you're talking about there. <laughs> yeah, so ruminant um, includes, I mean, mostly cows. So you'll think of beef, dairy, sheep and goats are also ruminants, deer are ruminants, and then non-ruminant is the other side. So that's humans, uh, chickens, pigs, you know, pretty much every other mammal. Um, And then what I also said was monogastric. So if you think mono, one gastric stomach, it's basically non-ruminant because ruminants, you know, you have heard that as a child, oh, a cow has four stomachs. So it's kind of um, getting into semantics, but technically the ruminant's stomach is a single stomach with four chambers. So there's kind of a, I don't know, non-ruminants and ruminants kind of argue that, uh, you know, point a little bit. But if you just think of, you know, cows are ruminants and everything else are non-ruminants, you know enough. <laughs> so... Tell me more about the the your project then that uh, that became essentially. Do we call is it defending a thesis or research? How does yeah. how, what was the thing that you uh, that took you uh, to become a, a, a PhD in yeah, animal science? So first, I worked um, for two years to get my master's, so I had to defend a thesis for that degree. Um, and then in our department, at least, we call the PhD thesis a dissertation. But a lot of other schools, those two terms are used interchangeably. Um, so for both of them, there was, you know, a large volume of work that I had to produce. And then um, at the end of both of those degrees, I had to defend it in front of a committee. And so for my master's committee, there were three people. Um, my PhD committee, we had four people. And they just, you know, they kind of grill you. <laughs> Tell me about everything about your research. They'll say, turn to page 185. Why did you do that specific thing? Why did you do this? Can you tell me more about this? And so that was, that's kind of the culmination of um, how to pass those two um, parts of it. But there's also, of course, um, coursework involved. And then um, specifically for my master's, uh, I did three uh, 
three fairly large research projects. And then in my PhD, oh boy, there was eight experiments total that I uh, conducted for that. So obviously the master's is the first one. So it was kind of the the baby thesis. <laughs> the big one is the dissertation. So I, I won't ask every single eight uh, research, although I'm <laughs> sure they're, they're very fascinating, but I, I do want to know like more about the actual act of defense. How long does that last? Is it like a day or is it, I mean, how, I mean, is, is it over a series of days? Um, for ours, you know, it actually wasn't too bad. Um, we started at 1 p.m. for my um, doctoral defense. And then um, you start off by giving a public presentation. And so that you have to make a public announcement. So it goes out to the whole department and anybody typically would be invited to attend. Um, however, with COVID, I could only, I think there was 10 people that were allowed in the room and then everybody else um, was welcome to join via Zoom. So um, some people's defense presentations, the public portion can go, you know, an hour, two hours. But my supervisor, he always gives us the recommendation to stick around 35 minutes. He says, nobody's attention span is much longer than 35 minutes straight. You need some breaks or, you know, you just need to make your message concise and, you know, present the, the main ideas in those 35 minutes. And so following that, um, there was open forum for questions. I didn't get too many questions. It was, I don't know, probably like 15, 20 minutes worth of questions, just people curiosity about what I presented. And then it goes to the closed door session. And so that's when I um, talk basically me to the four committee members. And then that's when they can ask me anything. And I needed to be able to defend all of my decisions and all of, um, you know, all of the rationale that went into uh, designing, conducting, and then writing about the experiments. So that part took, I mean, it can take up to like four hours I've heard for other students, but I think mine was over probably like two and a half hours. So, I mean, it's not, it's not that bad. It was definitely a lot of stress. <laughs> it was a lot of relief when it was finished. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like over several days or anything. Do, do you do like practice defenses, like where you maybe have some friends kind of try to poke holes in or try to do that? Or, or, or do you just kind of just go over it over and over again? Like, what's yeah, the, I did is there that any a little preparation bit. for it? So, um, I had... I think three separate practices where I invited a few of my coworkers and then another professor that I, you know, get along with really well. And so it was actually um, the equine professor that I worked with a lot when I was, you know, 11 years old doing these 4-H contests. And so she was like, I know nothing about swine nutrition. Tell me what the heck does this mean? And so that was good because it took me back. And instead of presenting to, you know, a room full of swine nutritionists and I assume that they know everything she was like no back up tell me the basics and that that was actually really helpful for me to think about the basics why why did we actually do all of this um so yeah I did a little bit of practice in that sense um but mostly just wanted to make sure I had my public presentation nailed down um and then I was like I can't predict everything that the committee's going to ask so <laughs> I guess it's not like I was winging it but it was kind of yeah, I can't fully prepare for that part. 
I, 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 but I mean, it's not like, I mean, this has been your bulk of your intellectual bandwidth has been occupied by this. So it's, it's very unlikely that there would be any surprise. So yeah, you, exactly. you defend this. How quick is the turnaround before they say, and you're a doctor now? Like, is it like within a day, a week, a month? What's the turnaround? Um, so they tell you if you pass your defense immediately. So they go, okay, go out in the hallway. And I stood there for like 10 minutes and then they deliberate. And then they called me back in and then they said, congratulations, we pass you. And so that is like the, probably the biggest step in my head is, okay, I passed my defense. Um, but then you also have to go through the formalities of submitting the completed dissertation to the graduate college, making sure all of your, you know, <laughs> what is the phrase? Your T's are crossed. Yeah, your dot, dot your I's cross your T's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they need to make sure that all of your formatting is correct and, you know, that you've met all of the requirements. And so then once I got the email that it was um, accepted, my supervisor emailed me and says, congrats, you can now call yourself a doctor. <laughs> and that uh, was about a great. week and a half lag time. Was, so I was like, okay. That's so that great. <laughs> okay. So next then, did were you already kind of poking around to find jobs uh because or or, or and did did you find them or did they find you uh and and what was the the job hunting experience like for you yeah so i started applying for jobs probably in like january um i've got rejected from a bunch of places <laughs> i'm not afraid to say that um and i got you know, a couple interviews here and there, but then they'd always ask me like, okay, do you have a defense date yet? What's your final graduation date? And at that point back in January, I wasn't sure exactly when I was going to finish. And a lot of the companies didn't like that answer. So it wasn't until, um, I'd say, no, it was right after my defense, actually, I got a message um, on LinkedIn from um, one of the directors at Cargill. And he said, um, you know, one of your committee members told me that you graduated. Congratulations. I'd love to chat. And so then we set up a meeting and then that led to, you know, a series of interviews and they ended up hiring me. So um, I, I kind of hate that networking is a thing because, you know, you're here all through high school and college and network, network, network. And you're like, what does that even mean? But truthfully, I got the job because my committee member was impressed with my work and he passed my name along. So if I would have applied for that job without that recommendation, um, I don't know if I would have gotten it. I would hope so, but it does, it does help to network. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Imagine being a doctor is is uh, is probably a good uh, feather in your cap to be able oh, yeah. to do that. So where is uh, so where is the job going to keep you in Champaign, or are you going to move for this? Um, I'm going to be moving to Ohio. Um, it's based out of um, I think it's a western suburb of Dayton. So I haven't found a place to live yet, but. Um, I mean, with COVID right now, a little bit's going to be remote, um, but eventually I'll be in the barns a little bit. Basically, my um, my job there will be similar to what I did in graduate school with designing experiments, managing them, and then um, summarizing data and presenting results. However, in grad school, I was in charge hands-on with all of the pigs that were involved in my studies, um, but this time I'll be 
more managing it from afar. And then if there's any, you know, special circumstances, if pigs need to be bled, if extra samples need to be um, obtained, those are times that they might call me out to the barn, you know, on occasion. Um, But for the most part, I'll be managing from an office setting. I was wondering, you know, I was like kind of posing this question to to um, scientists when I, I have them uh, for the interview. What would your dream experiment be where you had a lab that had really no worries about funding and all of that? Um, what would you like to research if you if you had yeah, the ability to have you know, resources uh, and lab technicians and all that, and you were the lead on that? What would you what would you um, what would be your hypothesis that you would go chase down? Yeah, this is kind of a tricky question because I'm inclined to just go with something that I have experience with. <laughs> I feel like I can't say like, oh, I'd want to, you know, find a treatment for cancer or something because I've never done that. Um, but as far as like in the pig industry, some of the big things that need to be solved are um, health of young pigs after weaning. So they get really stressed when you, Um, basically make that transition. You typically wean around three to four weeks of age. So that means you're taking um, the baby pigs from the mom and moving them to a new facility. And so at that time, there's really abrupt changes happening in the gastrointestinal tract um, where, you know, they're going from a almost all milk diet to a plant and animal based diet. Um, And so that's stressful. But I mean, just think of taking away your mom. That's stressful in itself. Mixing with new litter mates, um, new facility, everything. So a lot of um, challenges that the pork industry face um, is basically maintaining the health of those young pigs through that transition. So different experiments to solve that problem are, I mean, they've been going on for years now and they will continue to go on because it's still not a perfect transition. Um, Other big things, so I don't know if you've ever heard of gestation crates, um, but that's kind of a hot button um, topic in livestock. And a lot of, um, you know, people that are on the animal, um, you know, welfare side of things say that it's cruel to keep um, sows in gestation crates. And I don't have a strong opinion either way. I think that gestation crates are a great tool that farmers have. And I can, you know, go in further to the pros and cons of that. But the reality is that consumers are driving um, the uh, the pork industry into group housing rather than the gestation crates. And so in the United States, I think it's still like 80% of all sows are still in crates. But in the next uh, couple decades, for sure, that's going to transition more into group housing. And so that's a completely new management situation that farmers are going to have to deal with. And for sure, more research is going to need to be done in that area as well. So those are kind of two of the big ones, at least in swine nutrition, that if I were to set up um, a lab that I would try to focus on. Just just for my own kind of clarification of this, is group housing something that is seemed to be the equivalent of free range to the extent that um, it it somehow is perceived as more ethical or is is that what is is that is that what the setup is? Yeah, pretty much. So they'd still be inside. So it's not like if you think of free range, you know, chickens, it's not like they're out on grass or anything, but they would be housed with other sows. And so it sounds great in theory, but you also have to think that these are 
Um, while they are social animals, they have a really strong so, uh, social hierarchy. So aggression is a huge problem when you put sows together, which is one of the reasons for years and years that you've kept them in crates. And so there's a lot of um, different management issues that arise once you put the sows together. But yeah, you're on the right track with it's they're more they have more access to space and um, more area to do so on so-called you know natural behaviors i this is a, a kind of probably another uh, question that goes along with this i was just reading recently about the problem of the um the feral hogs uh in the united states has there yeah. been anything in your uh in your research that has talked about how to best kind of confront um that uh, issue from an uh agricultural and ecological standpoint in my research, no, I'm not that familiar with it, but it is a huge problem. I know before COVID hit, all of us in the swine industry were just like, oh my God, the pork industry is going to die because we, we had this African swine fever that was just running rampantly. And it, I mean, it still is, but COVID just took out, took over all of the headlines, but running rampantly through Asia and Europe. And it all is um, transmitted mainly through the feral hog populations. And luckily, it hasn't come to the United States yet. Um, but I mean, people were freaking out. You know, we need to be ready to solve that problem. And I, I do not have the solution. I think if I did, I would be a lot more, I don't know, well paid or famous if I could solve that problem. But um, yeah, I honestly don't even know where the status of that problem is right now. Because like I said, it was all about, you know, this African swine fever pandemic. And I were like, pandemic, that's a crazy word. And then COVID hit and <laughs> I haven't heard anything about ASF. It's all about COVID. So yeah, yeah. that is a huge, a huge problem. Uh, that's that's uh, yeah, I, just, I, I came across an article about that this week, and I think I had read something about it. Uh, maybe I was listening to a podcast once before, and they were talking about that. So, Molly, you've been so generous with your time, and I was wondering if you could leave listeners today with a some advice uh, for or tips for success. Sure. Um, I mean, I would say that my whole I don't know, philosophy as, you know, I transitioned from high school into college and then into graduate school is just to stay honest, you know, don't try to cut corners, be a hard worker and be adaptable. Like coming from West Chicago, I had never stepped foot on a pig farm. <laughs> and then here I am and I have a PhD in pig nutrition. So, and it, the same is kind of true for my brother as well. Like, you know, I touched on that in the beginning I don't really know how we got interested in agriculture as much as we did, but just keep your eyes open. There are so many different careers that I'm sure you have never even heard of and that I haven't heard of. And so sometimes just finding these niche things, even, you know, when I talked to my mom when I was starting grad school or, you know, truthfully, even recently, again, what do you do? What is pig nutrition? Like, But it, it's true. Like there are so many different niche careers and just, Keep your options open, you know, just, just be honest, be a hard worker and just explore different options. I would say those are kind of how I've, you know, led my academic career so far. Uh, Molly, this has been great. Thank you so much and good luck with your move and all things that you're going to do over at Cargill. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. 
You can follow We Go Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search We Go Vox, that's We Go, V-O-X, or search on Facebook for We Go Places Podcast.